0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept, will talk about the fight between the establishment and insurgents in the Democratic Party over the last three decades. And then Jenny Brown reviews the history of abortion politics in the U.S., where we are now, and how we could do better. First, the Dems, a party with a long history of stifling radicals within and without. In his book, We've Got People, published last May by Strongarm Press, Ryan Grimm, Washington bureau chief for The Intercept, reviews the history of fights within the Democratic Party to push it to the left and the establishment's efforts to squash them. Is that establishment's power slipping? Here's Ryan Grimm with some answers. We're now seeing, of course, this fight between establishment Democrats and uh, insurgents coming to a head uh, as the primary season approaches. But uh, you know, this is a story with long, long roots, uh, and you trace it back at least as far as the Jackson campaign. How did the Jackson campaign figure um, where we are today?
1: I mean, one of the fun things about that campaign is that's it's close enough in time that so many of the people who were involved there or kind of got their start there are now, you know, major players in. In the in the fight today, like Sanders, Bernie Sanders was Burlington mayor at the time and uh, was running for Congress and was one of the only white elected officials in the country who endorsed Jackson. But Jackson damn near won. The Washington establishment was in full blown panic because the race had come down to Michael Dukakis and Jackson and they were in a delegate tie and and polls were showing Jackson with a lead in the upcoming primary of Wisconsin. And if he won Wisconsin, he, he was looking like he could steamroll into the convention. They were coming up with plans B, C, and D. They were going to um, get Mario Cuomo to come in if Dukakis couldn't, couldn't stop the reverend. The panic achieved its goals. You know, the, the two weeks of panic of, of telling voters, if you nominate Jesse Jackson, the, the party will be annihilated. And,
0: and then, of course, they went on to the great success of the Dukakis candidacy.
1: Right, right, clearly. And, that, and that's the other thing. It's like, if these pragmatists actually won elections, then they'd have a better argument. But they can't even do that. This was a democratic year, you remember, like, because they, ex- they thought whoever won the nomination was going to easily beat the hapless George H.W. Bush. Um, but of course, they didn't. I
0: guess uh, that that branch of the party uh, would point to uh, Bill Clinton as a great success story. Popular guy elected twice. What's wrong with that justification for their strategy?
1: Well, they would. He beat the hapless George H.W. Bush, and he did it with 43 percent of the vote because, you know, Ross Perot was was siphoning off a lot. The always eccentric Jerry Brown you know, ran a populist progressive insurgency for the presidential nomination in 92. He had a, a
0: tax plan straight out of Arthur Laffer, though.
1: Yeah. So and, you know, that's the thing. You You know, none of this is clean ever. But so he ran to Clinton's left and you know, he ran on a small dollar financing scheme where he wouldn't take more than a hundred dollars from people. And, um, he would, he would encourage people to call his one 800 number to donate because there was, you know, the problem that Jesse Jackson had is he had no way to, to quickly aggregate small dollars when he had energy and momentum. Unlike somebody like Sanders, he you can just tell people to go to Bernie com and that's his fundraiser. Jerry Brown's solution to that was to create the, the one 800 number to, to kind of try to combat the, the influence of, of big money. If, if Jerry Brown wins that nomination, there's no reason to think that he can't beat Ross Perot and George H.W. Bush in 92. So that's one of the problems with, with the argument that, well, Bill Clinton won, so therefore, that's what you have to do to win.
0: Rather like Obama, Clinton really didn't leave much of a legacy. You know, his, his vice president was, was an, unable to beat George W. What is it with these guys? They don't leave much uh, behind
1: when they're done with office. Yeah, and they both lost the house in waves two years after winning, and so they both of them had you know two years with Democratic majorities and then six years with uh, either a divided Congress or a Republican Congress. You know, Clinton's legacy would be slashing Social Security if if uh,
0: if it hadn't been for Monica,
1: <laughs> right? Yes, you know, so he both he and Obama like they really wanted a legislative agenda, and so both of them spent. A lot of capital trying to give Republicans cuts to social safety nets, etc. Yeah, like you said, luckily for a variety of reasons, they failed.
0: A figure that runs through your book is Rahm Emanuel, that emissary of Satan. Uh, he recruited a lot of these conservative Democrats to run, uh, who then later <laughs> would give the Democratic agenda or the liberal agenda a lot of trouble. How does Emanuel figure into this story?
1: He's such a fun character because he's he's been there for so so much of it, and he's always advocating for positions that, that in retrospect are just objectively wrong. He comes from this famous family of of three brothers who are all ex- extraordinarily successful: one, Zeke Emanuel, uh, physician; the other, Ari Emanuel, the the powerhouse, loudmouth Hollywood agent; and then Rahm, who, as a twenty year old, gets involved in his first race in in 1980, and immediately is elevated to become the like chief fundraiser for this congressional campaign because it's so clear that he just has such a knack for talking rich people out of their money. The campaign he was running was really the first effort to oust a sitting member of Congress for being too hostile uh, or too skeptical of, of Israel. He ended up barely losing that race, but two years later they recruited Dick Durbin and Dick Durbin ended up winning. It was a Republican congressman. You know, this is back in the days when there was a lot more ideological heterodoxy among the parties. And so you had a Republican congressman who was like the PLO's man in Washington. That certainly doesn't happen today. Um, But Dick Durbin ends up beating him. And so then Rahm Emanuel eventually goes to work for the DCCC, which is the kind of campaign arm for House Democrats, which had not really existed as a as a force before 1980, but after 1980, when Democrats lean into corporate fundraising strategy, DCCC becomes the vehicle they use they use to do that.
0: Yeah, they had this belief that they were losing because they need, and they needed more money, right? They need more corporate money, and so Tony Coelho and Robert Manuel out there are like shaking the corporate culprit.
1: Right, and because late 70s, there are these Supreme Court rulings that really opened the the floodgates for corporate money, and. It's true that Republicans capitalized on that quicker than Democrats did, and, and it's true that they spent heavily in Senate races in 1980 on TV, 30-second TV ads attacking all these liberal lions who they end up stunning the world by beating. And so they say, yeah, we need, we need our own consultants. We need our own corporate PACs, and we need to get into the modern world of campaigning. We can move past ideology, really, as long as we're just really good at the nuts and bolts and the blocking and tackling of, of campaigning and fundraising then we're going to be fine, And Rahm Emanuel was, that's where he cut his teeth in in the eighties. And then he becomes Bill Clinton's fundraiser and his knack for fundraising saved Clinton. You know, when Clinton was getting clobbered in New Hampshire with the Jennifer flowers stuff and the draft dodging stuff, his campaign was on life support. And the only reason he was able to survive was because Rahm Emanuel had raised him so much money that he could bomb New Hampshire with TV ads and maintain his place. And, then you know, win New Hampshire and call himself the comeback kid, uh, and so Rahm then spends most of the the Clinton administration as um, as a White House official, urging him not to embrace gay rights, pushing back on every possible liberal piece of agenda, and pushing forward things like welfare reform and Wall Street deregulation, and you know what we've come to know of as the the Clinton agenda. And then he spends like two years making ten twenty million dollars by just brokering deals between people he'd met while he was in the Clinton administration. And then he quickly runs for Congress in 2002 on a pro-Iraq war message. And then four years later, he's DCCC chairman, recruiting this this conservative class that will then hamstring what's possible after the financial meltdown.
0: Yeah, well, then when he's in the Obama administration, uh, he was part of the the uh, the crew that was uh, urging a, a much smaller stimulus package. You know, Romer and all were talking about one six or one point eight trillion, um, and Larry Summers says eight hundred. In the midst of the you know the greatest crisis in seventy years, they're arguing for caution.
1: Right, and they had just witnessed the ability of quote unquote necessity to drive Congress to do something that it doesn't want to do. When they asked for the $700 billion bailout, you know, the, the House of Representatives' first reaction was no. So the market dives 700 points and, and the media blames Congress for not passing this bailout. And so like a week later or so, they passed the bailout. And there was no sense from Rom or the Obama White House that they would do the same thing with a stimulus. You know, the economists came to them and said, look, the holes, like you said, $1.6, 2 trillion hole were in here. We don't fill that hole. We're going to be looking at 10% unemployment as far as the eye can see. And instead of saying, "Okay, then let's force Congress to do 1.6 trillion and let them vote it down, and then watch the stock market dive," it'll be a couple days of a bloodbath, and then we'll get our 1.6 trillion. Instead, they brought in Susan Collins and asked her, "You know what? What do you need, Susan?" And before they even brought in Susan Collins, they're listening to political geniuses like Rahm and like Larry Summers, who are like, we can't do anything more than 800.
0: But you know, the strategy of preemptive compromise, uh, which seems to me you know, what the Obama people are all about, um, like you said, they lost Congress again. And these guys are supposed to be the pragmatists with the winning advice. And yet they really
1: have a hard time winning. The Republicans were very clear from the get that they were going to oppose everything they were saying it privately at first in ways that certainly would have gotten back to the White House. And then pretty soon they were saying it publicly. Their mission was going to be the opposition party. They were going to vote no on everything. And if the economy stunk in two years, they were going to reclaim Congress. Like That was their strategy. And instead of believing Republicans when they said that, they thought, well, no, if we, give, if we make 40 percent of this tax cuts that Republicans have in the past said they support, the hypocrisy will just drive them to vote yes. And it just represents a, such a misreading of, of the Republican mindset to believe that they're going to be shamed into doing anything.
0: The Republicans are maybe crazy, but they've got uh, a political philosophy they deeply believe in and in the sense of power and ruthlessness. And uh, that's how you win.
1: Right. And then they feel like they've got nothing to lose Um, or they have they're not going to lose anything is the way I should put it. Hey, if if the unemployment stays at 10 percent, okay, that's fine with them. It's not our people are unemployed, right? not our people. And in fact, they're not going to say it out loud, but 10 percent unemployment is not necessarily bad. You know, it's going to drive wages down. It certainly aggregates power in the hands of bosses. Whereas Democrats, if you present them with something that says, like, look, we tried everything we can. And this is the best you're going to get. Let's say it's the Affordable Care Act, and it's going to expand health insurance to 20 million people. It's not going to expand it to 70 like we hoped, but it's going to do 20 million. Basically, every Democrat is going to vote yes for that.
0: I'm speaking with Ryan Grimm, author of We've Got People from Strong Arm Press. So now, 2019, going into 2020, it's a very different political landscape from going back to the Clinton years. The memories of the 70s are still fresh. You know, everybody, the DLC was responding to his perception of the Democratic Party as too far left and weak on foreign policy and like weak on the welfare of chiselers and all this business. We're in a very different world now where uh, despite a officially low unemployment rate, people still feel broke, and um, a couple of insurgencies, Sanders 2016, and again now, um, and then AOC, uh, who gave you the title of your book, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. She did. They've got money, we've got people. So we're in a very different political landscape now. Um, Elizabeth Warren, somewhere in the edges between... <laughs> Orthodoxy and, and rebellion it does seem like the, the, that same democratic establishment is in a state of utter panic so you got Biden stumbling and not Duval Patrick coming into the race I mean wh- how do you read this landscape now or is this like some sort of like holdover panic uh, of, of a receding power or do they have the the means really to frustrate the rebellion within the party
1: Well I think they're worried that they might not have the means as AOC has put it and and this was her experience in her race, you know, we should knock on the door because sometimes it just falls over. You know, Joe Crowley was this, this Titan. He was the King of Queens. Uh, he's basically next in line to be house speaker. Uh, he has endless millions of dollars in his coffers and, and at his fingertips if he needs more to the point where nobody had seriously challenged him for for decades. And the they, you know, as she put it, you know, they run a bartender against him and he brings 9000 people to the polls to back him
0: Who often also happens to be charismatic and very politically skilled and very beautiful. So, I mean, she's <laughs>
1: she does have some positives, too, right? Not just a bartender. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, but so she ha- she definitely had had political skills, but that shouldn't have been enough to right. beat a figure of a Joe Crowley's power if the power was what it said it was. And so there's now a real fear among the Democratic establishment that the mirage of their power is being exposed. And once and once they lose that, what they have left is control over financing of the party. And what both Warren and, and Sanders um, and a number of candidates at the at lower levels are showing is that without these big money donors, they can they can raise a competitive amount of money. And if their agenda polls better than the centrist agenda, and Sanders has the capacity to, to raise money for his agenda. That is a real threat that they don't have a total answer to, which which is demonstrated by all of these cast of characters that they keep rolling out to try to get in his way. You almost have to feel bad for them. They're, they're locked in this existential struggle for control of the party and the soldier that they're able to, the, you know, the, the gladiator they're able to roll out onto the, the field of battle is Joe Biden. Well, I've also got Mayor Pete, they've got, and they've got Mayor Pete, who's uh, national polling just showed he's at zero percent with the black vote. The black vote was what you know saved Hillary Clinton in in 2016, and without without that, the establishment has nothing. And so, if Pete is splitting Joe Biden's vote, Joe Biden is still maintaining strong support among among the black vote, but Joe Biden can't make it because he's not polling well enough elsewhere and pete can't make it because he's not polling well enough with the black vote and then Duvall can't get oxygen because pete and joe are both there it really is a mess for you know as far as they're concerned
0: no but i bet the, the- wing of the party, though, is looking at uh, the gubernatorial victories in uh, Kentucky and, and Louisiana saying, well, maybe our uh, idea of going after those suburbanites who don't like Trump is a good one. And, uh, you know, we should avoid uh, scaring with all this left wing uh,
1: talk and all these left wing candidates. Are they going to run with that? That is a problem for the Sanders wing. Uh, you know, as the party becomes increasingly wealthy, then, you know, they become separated from you know, what they were in the, in the 20th in a lot for a lot of the 20th century was not, not a workers party, but a party that was large, you know, that most workers, uh, supported. Now what's working against the, the centrists there is that those people in the suburbs are not as centrist as, the, as a Rahm Emanuel would hope they would be like, they're very much open to Medicare for all they're open to a, a green new deal. They face the same climate emergency, that everybody else faces and they feel the same tenuous hold on their economic fortunes. They do not feel confident that the United States is set up to be a place where their life is going to be better for their kids than it, than it was for them and better for their grandkids than it was uh, for their kids. You know, so they feel a lot of the anxieties that could drive people in a, in a leftward direction in a way that wasn't necessarily true 20 or 20 or 30 years ago when, um, suburban, voters felt a a much bigger gulf between them and and the the lower classes
0: yeah there were those suburban voters uh the reagan democrats that uh, made stan greenberg famous uh but that's not the suburbs now
1: right the suburbs now is, is indivisible ladies if you if you poll them you will find higher support for medicare for all among working class people but only by you know five six seven points when it comes to questions of taxes that's going to be where the rubber kind of hits the road and i think that's why you see warren you know shying away from taxes when it comes to her medicare for all plan and democrats saying we're not going to tax anybody making less than two hundred fifty thousand, or whatever the you know the threshold is that they're picking to try to to find receptivity in those suburban areas
0: and finally what is impeachment Doing to uh, the political strategy for next year's election, it seems like it's just eclipsing everything else. Is it really distracting valuable political energy from what could be an uh, you know, important fight against beating trump at uh, at the ballot box?
1: I think that remains to be seen because there's still so much time between between now and the election. You know The ratings for impeachment have not been you know, anywhere near what they were you know for Mueller or for even for Michael Cohen's testimony. And so people aren't compl- that fixated on it. And I think partly it's because the, the ending has been spoiled, maybe not the the way that it ends, but the verdict is in. He did the crime like he like everybody pretty much can see like, oh, yes, the question of whether or not he uh, pressured Ukraine to investigate uh, Joe Biden has been answered. He did it. <laughs> so I mean, that, the the that guy point, has a long rap sheet. There's no doubt right, about it. Right. <laughs> Right. The suspense is kind of out on on that. It's more a question, I guess, now whether anybody's going to do anything about it. And people think that there's no way Republicans would would break on this. And that's certainly where the smart money is. But on the other hand, if you're going to have one issue that's going to really get get Republican senators upset, it's you know, not funding your, your client regimes that are in a proxy war with Russia. You know, that's that's going right at the thing that they care about. Um, and that 's what 's made the politics of it so so interesting and and i and I think for a lot of people on the left kind of boring because the underlying policy is is not one that excited anybody to begin with you know making sure that you fund the Ukrainian military to continue its war with russia
0: yeah, well, then you see people like David Brooks writing columns celebrating the Washington Insider, parading all these witnesses uh, forward who are part mm-hmm. of like the permanent government. This is not the kind of thing to enar- enamor um, your party to the masses.
1: No, it's, I'm sure these are you know, fine folks or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's like really a <laughs> bunch of bureaucrats. It's just not the thing that's going to get uh, the masses of the people fired up.
0: So what's your, uh, your prediction? Is uh, four more years of Trump?
1: Well, I mean, his health is, seems to be an open question. Um, and people had said that one of the best arguments for impeaching him would, would be that you'd give the guy a heart attack, like an actual literal heart attack. And I don't think that that was necessarily a crazy forecast to make. He does seem you know, much more bothered by impeachment than, than one, might, one might think. Four years of Trump, certainly very real possibility. I think that the media is making a mistake by counting uh, Bernie Sanders out in the way that they are. Nobody's polling above 30%. And Sanders has an activated base, one that is organizing in Super Tuesday East states, in Iowa and New Hampshire feverishly. I think it probably helps that Sanders has the str- strongest base of service workers. Yeah, you know, These are people who have to have to deal with jerks as part of their job and so that that's excellent training for canvassing and you know hitting hitting concerts in farmers markets and trying to talk people into filling out your surveys and and coming out coming out to vote. I don't know how much you can move the needle on that, but I think he shouldn't be counted out. Uh,
0: but then, of course, you have the uh, the establishment uh, desperately touting uh, that Pete Buttigieg is running a strong fourth.
1: A strong fourth. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that
0: was, one of my favorite
1: headlines of recent weeks. That was so good. <laughs> That had yeah Sanders in first not mentioned. But yeah, to judge a strong fourth. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't see how there is a sense, a legitimate sense in the black community that he has animus towards the black community that that there that there is an animating kind of anti-blackness behind um, his campaign. And as long as that sense prevails, I just can't understand how he can be seen as as a plausible. Uh, candidate.
0: That was Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief for The Intercept and author of We've Got People, published by Strong Arm Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of For the Love of Money, DeFunk's 1982 cover of the 1973 O.J.'s song. Next, abortion, one of the more controversial topics in American politics. Abortion was legal in the U.S. and tolerated by the Catholic Church until the mid to late 19th century. What changed? How did the long fight to legalize it here finally succeed? And with the right to abortion continually chipped away, how can its defenders do better? Here's Jenny Brown, author of Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now, just out from Verso. Let's start with some history. Why was abortion banned in the first place? It was not really much of a concern uh, in U.S. law until the middle of the 19th century. Yeah, the that's Catholic right. The Catholic Church really didn't care about it till later in the century. So what, what happened uh, in the 19th century to change uh, attitudes?
2: The charge was led by doctors who wanted to put um, midwives and lay practitioners out of business. They were trying to form up as a profession and they, they worked very hard to try to get the clergy and the, and the um, newspapers to come out against abortion. But they weren't really able to make much traction until after the Civil War. And the reason given for, uh, for them actually being able to get traction was that the white birth rate had been dropping. Particularly, they were concerned about um, Catholic immigrants
0: yeah, there was worry about the native stock. Yeah, there was a very, very being replaced, and, as they and, say now.
2: And I have, I have quotes uh, from Ohio Senate Select Committee convened to figure out what to do about the birth rate, in which they say, "Well, you know, we need to ban abortion because white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are having abortions at a greater rate than Catholics." Ironically, <laughs> we're we're talking about like sort of an anti-Catholic move to ban abortion. So there was not a, a big uh, religious objection to abortion. That was really not what was in the lead. Newspapers started to um, started to oppose it, partly because they wanted to curry favor. They were also worried about the about the birth rate. But um, they also got a lot of ads from abortionists and and uh, people who were purveying pills that would promise to bring your period back and. So forth, there was an enormous advertising revenue that they had to give up in order to in order to come out against abortion, so it was it was a battle
0: but the the, the medical profession was playing an important part. They wanted to est- establish themselves and uh, marginalize their competition from the midwives so.
2: yes, exactly, because as one historian says, abortion was the first uh, medical specialty, and doctors were very alarmed that uh, women were starting to have abortions to control their family size. In the 1830s and 1840s, they were somewhat sympathetic to women who might have been seduced and gotten pregnant and weren't married, and that would ruin their lives. But as a century progressed and women were starting to control their family size, that became a concern. Several doctors at the time write polemics aimed at women trying to prevent them from getting abortions, talking about how terrible it is. There was also a a scientific basis for their argument because the, the law said that Until quickening, basically, it wasn't an abortion. It was not treated as a... Which is
0: also a Catholic doctrine until late in the century. That's
2: right. The law basically treated most of what we consider to be abortion as as completely ordinary, and they didn't really think of uh, the fetus as growing in a continual process. They thought of it as becoming human along about the fourth month, quickening when you can feel the fetus move. That became questioned when science actually started to study the growth of fetuses, and they started to understand that there wasn't a, a distinctive break there. However, I think people would still say there's a difference between a fetus that's, uh, that's 12 weeks and a fetus that's... People understand that, so Catholic doctrine and the, and the old law in the United States sort of followed people's common sense about it. What was
0: abortion like uh, during the days of its illegality? New York State legalized abortion law in 1970, and then Roe was a couple of years later. So close to a century of illegal abortions, uh, what was the procedure like? How did one get one? Who did them? Well, there aside was... from Frank Sinatra's mother.
2: <laughs> well, there was an extensive underground, of course. When it was made illegal, all the people who had still been providing it tried to continue. Some of them were, were arrested by Anthony Comstock. The very most famous one, uh, Madame Restel, was her, her uh, professional name. She had a giant mansion on Fifth Avenue. She advertised in all the newspapers. She was arrested by Comstock in the 1870s and, and committed suicide shortly thereafter. But she had a good run. She was uh, providing abortions f- from the 1840s on. There have been ups and downs in abortion enforcement and... In several towns, there were professionals doing abortions fairly openly in the 20s and 30s. At the end of World War II, there was a crackdown, and a lot of these doctors who were, uh, had really good results and were... Um, they weren't advertising in the newspaper, but people knew about them. They started to get arrested, and that forced a lot of the abortions that had been safe into the hands of people who really were mercenaries and were really just trying to make money, which resulted in a lot more deaths. Quite a few people died as a result. A lot more were hospitalized, and there were whole wards in the 60s devoted to botched abortion cases.
0: There's a line that uh, affluent women had no trouble getting abortions. That's not true, right? Right.
2: Lucinda Sisler uh, argues she's one of the, really, the women's liberation leaders who was responsible for the New York law passing. She says that it was more an information elite than a financial elite. If you knew somebody, if you knew some of the connections that you could make, it was possible. But if you didn't have those connections, then no matter how much money you had, you, it was very difficult to find. And And for people to find abortions domestically, again, it was, did you know somebody? It wasn't so much the money. And a lot of college students went and got illegal abortions and died as a result. It was not something that only poor people faced.
0: The movement to, to legalize abortion, you open the, the book with this story of, uh, of a hearing, which was, what, 17 men and a, and a nun, <laughs> right, or something like that. And uh, some of your um, ancestral colleagues in Red Stockings disrupted that. Right? Describe that uh, that whole um, eruption of activism.
2: Yeah, there was a a movement of professionals clunking along during the 50s and 60s, appalled at the carnage that the abortion law was creating, who wanted to um, create exceptions to the law. They thought, well, if we can only um, make sure that Women who are suicidal are able to get abortions or women who already had five kids are able to get abortions. Anyway, they were trying to create exceptions to the, the penal code that made basically all abortions illegal in most states. And they were somewhat successful in getting the laws loosened up, but they never demanded uh, full repeal of the abortion laws. And when the Women's Liberation Movement burst on the scene, in 19, starting in 1967, but really in 1968 and 1969, they examined their own experience of having illegal abortions and could see that all of the exceptions that were being suggested were not uh, going to help them. What they really needed was repeal of the abortion laws. That is nothing in the criminal code about abortion. Yeah, what was
0: that model law? It was Just a blank page?
2: Yeah, right, right. They, they had a model law that was, uh, that was essentially a blank page. Sisler used to say you can't repeal a law with a pencil. You have to use an eraser because... As soon as repeal became very popular as a slogan, all kinds of reformers and people who wanted to go do half measures started calling their measures repeal. So it was very confusing. One of the things that the feminists did is they broke up a a reform hearing. And the reform hearing was people we would think of as good liberals who were trying to change the law. But the feminists wanted radical change, and they felt that their best strategy was to attack the liberals. So they actually broke up this hearing, and the, the leaders of the hearing said, we're on your side, we're on your side. But the thing is that they were not on the same side. The side that wanted full repeal, which was the women's liberation position, actually had a, a opposing interest to the side that wanted to slightly loosen the law but still man, maintain control of, of people's reproduction.
0: New York State legalized abortion in 1970, and then Roe was a couple of years later. But even those moves were not really fully what women's liberation had been demanding.
2: Right. I mean, the, one of the big obstacles is that in most states you still have to have a doctor uh, providing, providing abortion. That restricts the supply rather drastically, especially when you have anti-abortion assassins assassinating doctors for doing abortions, as we've seen. That was one big problem with the law. Another problem with the law is that viability was essentially baked into both of those uh, decisions, and in, especially into Roe. And viability, as there are medical advances that make it possible to save babies that are at much earlier gestational ages, we're seeing our abortion rights rolled back to those ages, um, which is something that uh, Lucinda Sissler predicted we would see. It really does matter whether or not you are able to get an abortion at, at those ages. And we've seen a lot of terrible cases where people have been unable to get abortions at 22 weeks, 23 weeks, because the laws in various states have restricted them. So now there are only a few clinics around the country that will provide abortions at that, at that stage. So that was a big problem. The other thing is that the demand for appeal is simply that we take... Abortion out of the criminal code. Abortion and pregnancy outcomes should not be, as Lynn Paltrow of National Advocates for Pregnant Women says, they should not be treated by the law at all. This is not something that we need to bring in courts, police, prisons, and the power of the state. Touch the American way, though, right? Yes. It is. And we, I mean, one of the arguments that anti abortion forces make is oh, women were never jailed for having abortions back when it was illegal. Well, not very many people were jailed for anything back in that period because we didn't have this explosion of prisons and police that we have experienced over the last 30 years. So really it's in bad faith for them to argue that. And and whenever somebody is jailed for their pregnancy outcomes, such as Purvi Patel in Indiana, the anti-abortion forces are not coming to their, their defense. So People who are getting jailed are um, only being defended by by feminists who, who want to see these laws completely repealed.
0: I'm speaking with Jenny Brown, author of Without Apology from Verso. Who gets abortions? I think there's an image that women who get abortions are disreputable sluts um, and uh, not respectable, but obviously uh, that's not the case.
2: Well, of course, we don't want to say you have to be respectable to get an abortion. No, we certainly don't Um, want that. But I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that the majority of abortions are uh, people who already have a child. That's one thing that is kind of surprising. Young women make up a fairly small percentage of folks who get abortions. Obviously, we should mention that uh, some people who don't identify as women, such as trans men and non-binary folks, also get abortions. But the picture is is certainly that if you are are responsible with birth control, then you will not need abortion. And this is completely false because it turns out that some people are much more fertile than others. Birth control has a large failure rate, all birth control, even sterilization has a failure rate. So to say that we we have to be punished for uh, not being responsible is ridiculous. And, you know, in Feminist Consciousness Raising, in my group, National Women's Liberation, we sit around and talk about when we didn't use birth control. And often it's pressure from the guy to not use a condom. So it's really not the women being, uh, being irresponsible, but the men. And then things happen, right? You might not use birth control. That's fine. Abortion is a fine backup. Well,
0: that's part of the, the process of shaming abortion, right? Is to say, well, it's not birth control, it's like... Any attempt to, to routinize abortion and just treat it as something unproblematic is always resisted by even people who you know, are nominally in favor of it.
2: Yeah, and between one in three and one in four women will get an abortion, so it's really a very standard procedure. It's not something that we should be all excited about. And when you say that you're not ashamed of your abortion... Then other people start arguing, you're a heartless person and all this. And so then that further makes it hard for people who don't feel bad about their abortions to speak out about it. And or it say, might even feel
0: good about it.
2: Yeah, or <laughs> and, release. And that's something is, you
0: can't say in polite society, that you feel good about your abortion.
2: Yeah, um, uh, Amelia Bono of Shout Your Abortion sort of started this uh, this hashtag. She and a couple of friends, uh, including Lindy West, started this hashtag, Shout Your Abortion, and... So many people testified about the relief that they experienced when they were able to obtain an abortion. And in the United States, it's not easy. It's an average of $530. Often you have to travel. Often there's a waiting period. If you're under 18, you often have to get your parents notified or, or they have to provide consent. I mean, it, it's it's a big task to get abortion. and that And that makes it more fraught. In countries where it's a lot easier to get it, it's just not a big deal. We need to aim at that and aim at talking about all the problems with birth control. Birth control, often you ha- it's very expensive to want to uh, go back to a clinic again and again and get a birth control system that you like, that doesn't have horrible side effects. They should be doing research on birth control for guys.
0: Of course, men don't have to live with the consequences, though.
2: <laughs> right. That, well, that's why, that's why women tend to be more responsible about birth control. Women are the ones who are most responsible. There's no question about that. Um, so to charge us with being irresponsible is kind of kind of wrong. From the minute that
0: abortion was legalized, there have been, been pushback, whether it's uh, regulating the time, uh, mandatory counseling, age limits. It's just the Hyde Amendment uh, to ban public funding for it. It just it hasn't stopped.
2: Yeah. I mean, immediately we saw a rollback. Part of that is that um, there was a split in and certainly a good portion of the Republican Party was was for allowing some abortions because they were worried about overpopulation, they were worried about burgeoning population in cities, they were worried about... Of the wrong kind of people, too. The wrong kind of people having kids. By 1980, the Republican Party had reformed around an anti-abortion position, and there are a lot of reasons for that, political and, and economic, but but one of the reasons that I think is, is not often highlighted is that the birth rate had dropped considerably and, and it was visible by the mid-70s. You start to see some of the politics that we see now around the alleged problems of social security on on uh, an aging population and due to a lower birth rate. And you start, you start to see that in the 70s and 80s. And so even Republicans who had been pro-abortion or had been supportive of birth control, such as George H.W. Bush. Nicknamed
0: Rubbers during his days yeah. in Congress, right?
2: Yes, he was, he was such an advocate of birth control, he was nicknamed Rubbers. By 1980, when he's running as, as uh, Reagan's vice president, he, he has take, completely switched. And that was very common um, among that, that portion of the Republican Party and the ruling class.
0: I'm speaking with Jenny Brown, author of Without Apology from Verso. Now let's talk about the political angle here. Um, the fight uh, to preserve abortion rights or to expand them has been very, very muted rhetorically. Um, it's been you know, in the hands of these uh, litigation professionals, uh, lobbying, vote for the Democrat to preserve the last vote in the Supreme Court. You know, It's all this very defensive, cautious stuff. It's not a matter of organizing, mobilizing people at all. I, I, I talked once to someone who's a former senior executive at Planned Parenthood. I asked her why they don't like sign up people who get abortions and make them part of a movement. Mm-hmm. She said, well, we don't want to politicize abortion. It's a personal thing. Of course, it's, as they used to say, always already politicized. But um, yeah. what about this strategy? Why is it being pursued? And why does it seem guaranteed to fail?
2: Well, I think what happened is that the abortion fight has gone back into the hands of professionals, much as it was in the 50s and 60s. They're not really fighting for their own freedom. They're fighting, if you can even call it fighting, they are providing a service to people. They think they're doing something for people. And that's the whole mindset. And it really spills over into the politics. So, for example, one of the slogans is, abortion is between a woman and her doctor. Well, leaving aside that doctors have a sordid history of both trying to ban abortion and, successfully banning abortion, and um, sterilizing women against their will, especially African American women. Leaving aside that, the idea that that your decision is made with your doctor is really trying to communicate that it's not just a woman who's making this decision, there's some professional supervision of it. This is coming back and biting us because now when we, um, for example, this Supreme Court case around In Louisiana, the Supreme Court has just agreed to um, look at a case in Louisiana where the state has been requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. Again, because we've been emphasizing that it's a decision between a woman and her doctor, we are now backed into this idea that only doctors can do abortions. If we had been fighting on that question and getting um, getting it so that all kinds of service providers could do abortions, and especially when it's prescribing a pill, that is something a nurse can do, it's something a nurse practitioner or a midwife can do, it's completely ridiculous to have it uh, something that uh, somebody with an MD has to do. If we'd been fighting on that, we would have a lot more providers, so we would not be pushed into this corner where hospitals won't recognize abortion providers and abortion doctors, and therefore the supply of abortions will be basically eliminated in any state that has that rule. And I think it's very likely that the Supreme Court will decide for the law and that we will face a situation where vast swaths of the country do not have abortion providers and for people to get abortions, they're going to have to travel um, to big urban areas.
0: What about the, the, the framing of the rhetoric around choice and privacy, too, rather than, say, you know, feminist struggle for freedom for women?
2: Yeah, privacy is another one. Privacy comes from the um, the Supreme Court in 1965 in the famous uh, birth control case, Griswold v. Connecticut. And then they, they reapplied that in, in Roe v. Wade, so the cry has ever since been privacy. But privacy is exactly the opposite of the strategy that the Women's Liberation Movement used, which was to make public these illegal abortions, these private things that had been shameful. And one way that you get rid of shame and stigma is to make something public so people realize that they are not the only one this happened to.
0: What can we learn from the, the successful uh, Irish struggle of last year uh, to legalize abortion in that you know very socially conservative country?
2: Yeah, there are great lessons and they kind of echo the lessons that we learned in the U.S. when we were trying to get abortion legalized. First of all, they... Um, They had a very similar movement trying to get exceptions to the law, for example. There was a a law that if you could get two shrinks and a physician to say that you were suicidal, you you could get an abortion. And they were trying to pare it down to one psychiatrist and a physician. You know, a lot of these little adjustments... They they don't unify people. People don't see how they can benefit from them, so it doesn't become a mass movement. It only became a mass movement when a group of anarcho-feminists in Dublin started a group called the Abortion Rights Campaign. They put abortion in the name, and they were criticized... Which the
0: experts advised against, right?
2: Yes, they were criticized for doing that. They were told, oh, this will just turn people off. In fact, it turned people on. The rallies grew... There, were, uh, there was enormous support. And then they, their slogan was free, safe, legal. So they were not just saying, let's, uh, let's have, have it for if you've been raped or, or suicidal. They were saying, let's, let's make it actually available on request for anybody who needs an abortion and free as well. Saying the word abortion, you cannot fight for abortion unless you can say the word abortion, and then, and then, making the full demand for free, safe, legal, both galvanized people, and it was an enormous campaign um, that drew everybody in the country in, in one way or another. One of the things that was most effective was people testifying about having had illegal abortions um, in the media um, to each other when canvassing. This was a, uh, and canvassing was an enormous part of the campaign they didn't believe that
0: like knocking on doors and talking to people
2: exactly knocking on doors and talking to people and some people they went back to again and again people who seemed undecided they would go and have deep conversations with them about about their experiences with reproduction and who might have had an abortion in their life and what the effects of that were the other thing that they had on their side was that um the catholic church has become its power has been weakened in ireland due to a lot of scandals
0: Well, there seems to be um, lessons for other kinds of political struggle there, too. Don't euphemize and engage with people deeply. A lot to be learned from that. How does abortion fit into the larger struggle for reproductive justice?
2: Abortion is just one part of the demand that the women's liberation movement made for full freedom for women, right? Feminism has kind of gotten boiled down to that one demand. And the problem with that is that we have been defending the right not to have kids, but we have not made any advances on the right to have kids, that is, child care, guaranteed health care, paid parental leave. So we're extremely behind on those issues in the United States. Um, we're virtually the only country that has no guaranteed paid parental leave. Obviously, we're one of the few countries that, that has uh, the resources that does not have a national health care system that covers everyone. We have very long working hours in the U.S., and we have no kind of coherent child care system that provides care, nor do we have a child care system that provides a decent living to the people who are doing the child care. So so all of those things are are necessary, and we've seen the birth rate go down because we don't have those guarantees. Women are really deciding to have maybe one child instead of two because of the cost and the expense. Some people are deciding... That they just cannot afford to have a kid, so it's not enough for feminists to just fight for uh, abortion rights, because we need the right to have kids when we when we want them, and this is something that a group of black women who were uh, meeting during during the um, Clinton healthcare reform came up with the term reproductive justice. So the principles of reproductive justice are not having kids when you don't want them, having kids when you do want them, and being able to raise your kids in safe and healthy conditions. So all three of those things go together. And I think that part of the reason that we are now seeing so much intense struggle around abortion and birth control is that the birth rate has gone down and the United States uh, ruling class does not want to pay for the child care and the health care and and the paid leave that we are demanding in order to get the birth rate back up they would really rather force us to have kids
0: yeah it seems like a lot of abortion opponents lose interest in the child once it's born
2: right because it's really about getting up the population and controlling women it's not really about wanting to provide healthy conditions for our human flourishing right they're much more interested in tax breaks for the rich and that sort of thing that's how the politics break out i think there are some individuals in the movement who might who might be very happy to support a national child care system, for example. But the leadership of the movement is never going to talk about that because that would cost employers money.
0: That was Jenny Brown, author of No Apology, just out from Verso. For reasons of time, I had to cut the portion of the interview where we discussed abortion pills, which are extremely safe and cheap and require neither clinic nor doctor. There's no reason, in fact, that they shouldn't be widely available over the counter. But the U.S. law on this is predictably very restrictive. For more, you can visit the website plancpills.org, plancpills.org. During the interview, Jenny Brown mentioned National Women's Liberation, a Deuce-funded feminist group carrying forward the spirit of the 1960s radicals. You can find out more at womensliberation.org. And good archival material and analysis of the abortion fight can be found at redstockings.org, an archive and grassroots think tank. Jenny will be in Oakland talking about the book on December 6th. More on that next week. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of François Couperin's La Triomphante, performed by Olivier Beaumont. Till next week, bye.